Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Today we're going to be picking up where we left off last week, um, in which I'm talking about the in-house debate in the church. Eternal Is hell eternal conscious torment, or is it annihilation? I said last week that I became an annihilationist. I've been an annihilationist for about seven months now, and that's what led me to rewrite my book, A Hellacious Doctrine. The revamped version is going to be out sometime in March, hopefully sooner rather than later. But I'm talking about some of the arguments from the Bible that convinced me to change my views. And if you want to see part one, if you want to see the positive case, go back and listen to episode 53. But I laid out the positive case. I laid out the arguments from the Bible for seeing hell as an execution chamber rather than a torture chamber but today because i didn't i did because i didn't have time to get to it last week i'm going to be talking about the arguments from the bible that people use to try to refute it and it's the arguments that i appealed to when i defended the eternal conscious torment view so let's get in it let's get into it first i'm going to be uh check talking about the argument from unquenchable fire the bible in certain places describes hellfire as unquenchable fire and traditionalists or eternal torment advocates argue well if the fire is unquenchable then you know, the Bible also uses the, the term eternal fire. Well, if it's unquenchable, if it's eternal, then that means it never goes out. And if it never goes out, why is it eternally burning? It must have something to burn. If what's burned goes out of existence, then there's no need to keep the fire going. God would not keep a, a, a fire going for all eternity for no reason. So the, the reason the fire must be ongoing and unquenchable, you... You, you, it, it never stops. Then that must mean that what is in that what is thrown in the fire is never consumed. I used to find this a convincing argument, but I don't anymore. And I'm going to quote from an essay in the book "Rethinking Hell: Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism." It's a it's a book that's put out by Rethinking Hell which is also a blog and a podcast, and this essay is from Edward Fudge. In this essay, Fudge writes, quote, Traditionalists assume that unquenchable fire means unending conscious torment. They do not acknowledge that this expression comes from the OT. That's an acronym for Old Testament. It's also an acronym for open theism, so <laughs> sometimes it can be confusing. Um where it has the frequent and regular sense of destruction that cannot be resisted. Quench means to extinguish or put out a fire. The psalmist 
for instance, says he will quench his enemy's fire, Psalm chapter 118, verse 2. And Hebrews 11.34 mentions heroes of faith who were able to quench the violence of fire. But God's fire of punishment cannot be quenched or put out. And so he warns the cities and nations in many places, Isaiah 131, Isaiah 134, Isaiah 1, chapter 1, verses uh, 10 to 11, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, Jeremiah 7:20, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 27, Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 47 to 48, Amos chapter 5, verses 5 to 6. Jesus warns the same in Mark 9:43 and Mark 9:48 when he speaks of the horrible place of punishment where the fire is not quenched. And what does fire do to its victims if it is not extinguished? It burns them up, exactly as John the Baptist announced concerning sinners' doom in his word about Jesus's eschatological wrath. He will clear his threshing floor, burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. End quote. That's a quote from Edward Fudge's uh, essay in Rethinking Hell, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism. It's a great book. It's on Amazon. I suggest you get it. But anyway, what Fudge is saying here is that an unquenchable fire is not a fire that never goes out. It's a fire that's never put out. Let me say that again. It is not a fire that never goes out. It's a fire that's never put out. In other words, the fire completely consumes what it is burning. No one comes along with a fire extinguisher or a big bucket of water and puts it out before it's able to consume what it's burning. It's not quenched. That's what it means to quench a fire. When you quench a fire, you put out a fire. So a fire that is unquenchable, it means that those who are thrown in hell, they have no hope. They are not going to avoid their doom. They're going to die. They're going to be burned up. No one's going to come along with a big cosmic fire extinguisher and rescue them from God's wrath. No, God gave them that chance. He died on the cross for their sins. He drew them with the Holy Spirit's provenient grace. The gospel was preached to them. They were exposed to apologetics and all sorts of things. You know, they had lots of God reached out to them with the gift of salvation. They turned it down until the day they died and that that's it, you know. When once once they enter Gehenna, they're going to go out of existence, and no one can stop it. It's a fire that is never put out. So, to argue that the unquenchability of the fire entails that it will last forever, and since it lasts forever, it must constantly have fuel to burn, and since it has, since that fuel is unrepentant sinners, therefore unrepentant sinners are never totally destroyed, is fallacious. Because that first premise, namely that an unquenchable fire is a fire that never goes out, is false. However, I think you can be forgiven, though, if, like me for a long time, your primary translation was the New International Version. Uh, now, I, I, I use the ESV, for, I use the NIV for, like, casual Bible reading, but for Bible study... And, yeah, you you know, I learned the difference from Michael Heiser, 
for Bible study, I go for the ESV because it's more word for word, whereas NIV, it, it's kind of a hybrid of a word for word translation and a thought for thought translation. And by that, I mean that most of the time, a sentence or phrase uh, that the translators think might be confusing to the reader, they will um, change the wording to express the same thought, but in clearer words. A good example of this is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, which in which John says, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, there, the NIV renders it uh, atoning sacrifice, but a lot of other more word-for-word -word translations renders it propitiation, and that's a more literal translation from the Greek. But most people don't really know what the word propitiation means. It's not a, it's not a word we use every day. And so, you know, it's the kind of word that you would have to crack open a dictionary to know. So the translators chose atoning sacrifice. It means the same thing, atoning sacrifice, propitiation, but mo most people would understand atoning sacrifice than they would propitiation. Un and this can have advantages in helping you better understand the Bible, but sometimes it has the opposite effect of actually obscuring the text. And this is the case if the translators themselves misunderstand what the biblical author is trying to say. And I think a, a very good case in which the biblical, in which the um, translators misunderstood and tried to clear things is in Mark 9.43. Here, the NIV translators render it, fire that never goes out instead of unquenchable fire like other more literal translations the weird thing though is that in the rest of mark chapter 9 the translators render it fire that is never quenched so i have no idea why they chose to render it fire that never goes out in verse 43 but not verse 49 or anywhere else that the greek shows up so, okay, second argument against, uh, against undying worms, uh, I mean, uh, against eternal tor uh, annihilation. Uh, sorry, my thought was disrupted by something that happened outside. Um, <laughs> you, By the way, you will notice that a lot of the arguments that traditionalists give against annihilation, when you, under when you understand the passage correctly it's actually an argument that supports annihilation and this is why chris date of rethinking hell in his in his debates with traditionalists will very often use the very proof texts that eternal conscious torment advocates use to make his case for annihilation rather than going through rather than going to mark 10:28 or some of the other arguments that i gave in the previous episode but here, here's the argument, I call it the argument from undying worms. So, Mark chapter 9, verses 48 to 49, speaks of those in hell as having a worm that does not die. But this does not support the case for eternal torment. Ironically, when this passage is properly understood... It is evidence for annihilationism, and you'll, you'll see. Let's, let's read the verse. If you have a Bible with you, 
I I recommend you go you pause it and you go get it and you open it and you go you don't have to but uh, it may help you follow along. Um, Mark chapter nine verses forty two to forty eight. Jesus says, "If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye." than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. Now, those who have a good grasp on the Old Testament, or at the very least take a glance at the margins in their Bible, they will realize right away that Jesus is loosely paraphrasing Isaiah 66.24. Therefore, understanding what Isaiah meant will shed light on what Jesus meant. In, in Isaiah 66, God executes judgment with fire and with his sword, at verse 16a. And when that is over with, many will be those slain by the Lord, verse 16b. The wicked will meet their end together, verse 17. By contrast, righteous people will endure verse 22. Isaiah goes on to say that all mankind will come to give Yahweh homage, and the wicked will be no more. That's in verse 23. Then comes the verse Jesus alluded to. And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. In his book, The Fire That Consumes, Edward Fudge conjectures that this imagery might have been inspired by something that Isaiah actually saw. The event that Fudge has in mind is Yahweh's defeat of the Assyrian armies that Hezekiah prayed for. See 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 to chapter 19, verse 36, and Isaiah chapters 36 to 37. That night, Isaiah said that, Quote, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death a hundred and eighty-five thousand men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies, end quote. Isaiah chapter 37, verse 36. The Hebrew term translated in both of these instances as dead bodies is pegramim. When, when pegramim is used, it always refers to corpses. We know that this scene is of the final judgment, because in verse 22, God said that he would create the new heavens and earth. God, through the prophet Isaiah, says that the final end of the wicked is that they'll be slain, verse 16, resulting in a large pile of corpses that will be disgusting to mankind, verse 24. Corpses are not alive. Dead bodies feel nothing. What Isaiah has in mind, and what God has in mind, aren't zombie-like creatures enduring eternal agony, but death. The worm and the fire are slowly causing the corpse to deteriorate until there is nothing left to consume. The way that eternal conscious torment advocates uh, construe Jesus' words in Mark chapter 9 is that what we have here are tormented souls in hell. Uh, they've got worms crawling in and out of their bodies, and, and they're burning in, in fire, and they're screaming. They're infested with maggots and all sorts of... That's not what we have here. What we have here are burning 
corpses being eaten by worms. That is the Old Testament context that Jesus is alluding to when he speaks of final judgment in Mark chapter 9. No, we don't have living people be, uh, being infested with with worms that torment them for all eternity. No, that that's not what we have here. That's not what Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah has corpses that were slain by the Lord. God killed them. And now they've got now they're burning and and they're being eaten. Um Edward Fudge comments that when when God says the worm does not die, it doesn't mean that the worm will never die. This is another argument. The argument says, oh, oh the eternal torment advocate says, oh, but it says the worm uh, doesn't die. So that means, you know, eternal torment. But no, Fudge says, no, it doesn't mean that the worm will never die, just that the worm will not die until it has finished its meal, i.e. the corpse. He likens it to an atheist who doesn't believe in an afterlife, telling his hypochondriac friend, you will not die. Obviously, this isn't an assertion that his friend will live forever, just that he won't die of whatever it is that, he, that the hypochondriac imagines is afflicting him. The only way you could read the statement, will not die, as will never die, is if you already presuppose that hell is a place of eternal torment. Otherwise, it looks like complete destruction of the wicked. You have corpses being burned and devoured by worms. It's a scene of death and decay, not conscious torture. How baffling, then, that eternal torment advocates take Jesus' words as Mar in Mark 9.48 as proving eternal torment. When this verse's Old Testament background is understood, it's actually a proof text that works against them. Now. I realize that sometimes New Testament authors will, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, add or change meaning of an Old Testament text. This is what Michael Heiser calls the repurposing of the Old Testament. Um, the author of the book of Hebrews does this with Psalm 45. Uh, instead of making it an inauguration of a king, uh, he makes the author of Hebrews makes it a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. However, this is an exception rather than the rule. And they don't do this with every Old Testament text. And there's no, and there's no precedent for saying that whenever an Old Testament text is, is cited, it must always carry a new meaning uh, than what the original audience would have understood. There is, I mean, there's nothing in the context of Jesus' words to, to indicate that he was you know, in a sense, zombifying Isaiah's corpses. There, there's nothing in, in the text that indicates that Jesus was changing the original imagery in Isaiah's prophecy there. And by the way, I mentioned Michael Heiser. Uh, he agrees with this, and he, he wrote this, I can't remember the book, but it's one of, it's one of the books in his 60 Second Scholars series, um, this is a quotation from one of those uh, Michael Heiser 60-second scholar books. Quote, The description of unquenchable fire where the worm does not die, Mark 9.43, Mark 9.48, is a quotation of Isaiah 66.24, which describes a flame that consumes the dead corpses of those judged at the day of the Lord. The context of the entire chapter is the eschatological judgment of the wicked who are slain 
by God with fire and sword, Isaiah 66.16, and meet their end, Isaiah 66.17. In contrast, the righteous will endure. The idea of the unquenchable fire, then, may refer to the fact that God's judgment cannot be stopped and is inescapable. The imagery of maggots, worms, speaks to the unstoppable consumption of the corpse as well. End quote. Next argument, eternal fire. The eternal fire argument is very similar to the unquenchable fire argument. Um, in the last episode, we saw the 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 phrase "eternal fire" show up in a in a text that actually speaks to actually gives evidence for annihilation. Jude seven uh, in Jude seven, Jude said that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by eternal fire, and that what ha Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of what would happen to all wicked and unrepentant sinners. Uh, well, Sodom. I, in, in the previous podcast episode, I argued that, well, Sodom and Gomorrah were reduced to ashes and the inhabitants were utterly destroyed. So, I argued it makes sense to think that the damned will likewise be annihilated. They'll be burned up in a similar manner that, Sodom, that the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah were. Um, and, in fact, the phrase eternal fire only shows up in two other places. Matthew 18:18 18, 18, and Matthew 25:41 and Jesus is the one speaking in these verses. And again, it has been argued that if the fire is eternal, there must be fuel for it to burn, and if the fuel is people, then the people must never cease to keep the fire going. So my traditionalist listeners may argue, all right, smarty pants, I'll concede that unquenchable fire doesn't imply eternal torment, but the fire is still said to be eternal. But, first thing we need to know is, is that Jude says that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged with eternal fire. Now, I mean, obviously, you read the book of Genesis. Turn to Genesis 19. Obviously, when Abraham uh, looked down from that high mountainous place and saw Sodom smoldering the next day, I mean, he didn't, he didn't see people screaming in conscious agony. So... That 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 right there gives us a hint that maybe eternal fire means something different than what the traditionalist thinks it does. Now there are three there are basically three possible answers to why Jude uses eternal fire language. Number one is it's a translation issue. Number two is that the source of the fire is eternal, God or some furnace going on in heaven. The third possible answer is that it's the the eternality of the effect of the fire. It's it's what the fire did that is eternal rather than the fire itself. I myself find options two and three to be the most likely. I don't really find one to be I don't really think this is a translation issue, so I'll just I'll just talk about those. The second option says that the source of the fire is eternal, so even though the fire that burned up Sodom and Gomorrah didn't go on forever, uh, it still could be said to be an eternal fire because the place the fire was taken from is eternal. Um, imagine a source of water that will never go out of existence. There's, there's a fire that needs to be put out, so firefighters hook up their trucks to this eternal source of water to pump water into their trucks so that they can extinguish the fire. 
Now, even though the water that is sprayed at the burning building goes out of existence by being dried up, you could still call it eternal water, because the body of water it came from was eternal. Some have speculated that perhaps there is an eternally burning furnace in heaven from which God took fire and hurled it at Sodom. Another in, in, other interpreters say that God himself is the eternal fire. Um, and that certainly makes sense because Deuteronomy 4.24, for example, says that God is an all-consuming fire. Uh, it's just that in the case of Sodom, God lived up to his title more literally than usual. Um, whether God has an eternal fireplace or, or whether he himself is the eternal fire, if the source of the fire is eternal, then Jude could properly call what fell on Sodom eternal. The third option says that it's not the fire that is eternal, but the effect that the fire produced. Sodom and Gomorrah have never been rebuilt, nor can be in principles. So, um, this would be an example of the figure of speech known as metonymy. Metonymy is a figure of speech which refers to the cause as though it were its effect. For example, if I said I hate Rage Against the Machine, that doesn't mean I hate the members of the band. I have nothing against those guys. Rather, when I say I hate Rage Against the Machine, it means that I dislike their music. We can see the eternal effect being used metonymously in other parts of scripture. For example, Mark 3.29, in many manuscripts anyway, refers to an eternal sin. The sin itself is not an eternally continuing act, as if someone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit says he has an, un says he has an unclean spirit for all eternity, and he never reaches the end of that sentence. Likewise, you know, he just, his, you know, it's an eternal sin. He, he just continues, he never gets done with this one instance of blasphemy because he never reaches the period at the end of his sentence. No, that's not, that's not what that means. It's, of course, that's assuming that it's verbal blasphemy anyway. There's, there's a, a lot of debate on what the nature of the unforgivable sin is, and I, I find issues with pretty much every offer out there that that that's a rabbit trail I'm not going to get into but that's you know one interpretation is it's verbal but it, you know even in that case in any case it's not a sin that the person never finishes committing he never gets to the end of it Hebrews chapter 6 verse 2 speaks of an eternal judgment but doesn't speak of the ongoing act of judging now since Jude obviously didn't mean an ongoing fire that tortures its victims when referring to eternal fire that fell on Sodom, why should we believe that Jesus meant that in the only two verses in which he uses the phrase, that, 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 he, that he means a fire that never ever goes out and tortures its victims? Well, if, if, if that's not what Jude meant, and Jesus doesn't really give any, he doesn't define what he means by eternal fire in the only two places as he uses it. I'm, I just think that maybe 
we should follow the hermeneutical principle of letting Scripture interpret Scripture. We should let Jude 7 inform us of how to interpret Matthew 18.18 and Matthew 25.41. And by the way, what's really interesting here is that Jonathan Edwards, himself a preacher who believed that hell consisted of eternal torment, he argued that Sodom and Gomorrah both suffered eternal fire because they were never rebuilt. Here's what he said, quote, The destruction to which Sodom is appointed is an everlasting destruction. This is said of the literal Sodom that is that it suffered the vengeance of eternal fire, Jude 7. The destruction that Sodom and Gomorrah suffered was an eternal destruction. Those cities were destroyed and have never been built since, and are not capable of being rebuilt, for the land on which they stood at the time of their destruction sunk, and has been ever since covered with the Lake of Sodom, or the Dead Sea, or as it is called in scripture, the Salt Sea, end quote. This is, this is Jonathan Edwards making that argument. He's saying it's eternal fire, not because the cities are continuing to burn to this day, but because the result of the fire, their destruction, it continues to this day, and it will continue forevermore. This is an eternal torment advocate saying this. Let's go to the next argument. The next argument, I mean, this is like, this is like one of uh, one of the really popular proof texts that eternal torment advocates use. Um, I remember seeing an episode of the One Minute Apologist uh, a while back, um, and Bobby Conway was interviewing Frank Turk. If you don't know what the One Minute Apologist is, it's 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 a program by Bobby Conway in which he interviews various different apologists on various different subjects. Very and it's very briefly. There are like two, three, four minute videos. Um, and Conway was asking Frank Turk about you know, the eternal torment and annihilation debate, uh, and he quoted John 3.16, which I quoted in the previous podcast episode, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Well, it says right there, they will never perish, but that implies that those who don't believe in Jesus will perish. And what does it mean to perish except to die? And it can't mean the physical death that we experience here on this earth, because even Christians experience that. It must refer to what Revelation calls the second death. And what Frank said is that, yeah, if you just took that verse alone, it does seem to support an annihilation. But Frank Turek said, but you got to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. And he said that basically, one of the, and the text that he appealed to, to kind of negate the force of John 3.16 was Matthew chapter 25, verses 45 to 46. Now, what does this verse say? Then they, the unsaved, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Uh, in the context, this is Jesus talking about, you know, the unsaved are the goats, the saved are the sheep, and he's going to say to some... You know, the goats, the unsaved, they're going to go to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So th this is the, the verse that Frank used in his, in his conversation with, with Conway.
In fact, I, when I was a traditionalist or internal torment advocate, I, I saw this as sort of a, a silver bullet verse that fatally wounded con- annihilationism or conditional immortality. Um, and this is what I wrote in my book, A Hellacious Doctrine. I said, quote, this cannot mean a mere age or epoch of time. If it does, then that entails that believers will only be in heaven for a finite amount of time. The word used to describe the punishment of the wicked is the same word used to describe the heavenly life of believers. If the Greek word really means age instead of eternity, then Christians really won't exist forever in heaven. The wicked will experience torment for an age, and Christians will experience heaven for an age. But this contradicts the rest of the Bible that assures us that we will live in eternity with Jesus Christ. Now, one could argue that perhaps the word Ionian means age in the first part of the verse and eternity in the second part of the verse. But that's not only ad hoc, that's also an assertion that Jesus committed the fallacy of equivocation, i.e. using different definitions of the same word in the same context. Jesus, being God and being perfect, wouldn't commit logical fallacies. The most reasonable and likely explanation is that Ionian means eternity, both in respect to the punishment of the wicked and with respect to the existence of believers in heaven. End quote. Now I see, and this is this is one of the reasons why I'm republishing the book under a new title and everything. That this is a very weak response. First, very few annihilationists argue that the the Greek word Ionian should be translated as age. Now, universalists make that argument, and so my argument would actually be a very good refutation, a very good response to universalists who say, "No, nah, they're not going to be in. They're not going to experience eternal punishment. It's just you know." Because the universal, at least the more conservative ones, not the really, really liberal ones, not the Rob Bells of the world who believe that, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, everyone's going to go to heaven. It doesn't matter what you do in this life or what you believe. You're, or, no, no, I mean, there are there are more conservative universalists who believe that hell is more like a recreational facility where they kind of learn to fear God there. And then once they once they repent, they're let out. And that's going to happen to everyone eventually. That's a more respectable version of universalism, in my opinion, than this whole, oh, it doesn't matter what you do or what you believe. or You know, everyone's going to end up in the same place when they die. And we're all going to be in the arms of our big, loving grandfather of a god. Um, but I don't, you know, this is, this is a very good res- response to the universalists. Because... Hey, if, we're, if the punished are only going to experience punishment for an age, does that mean that Christians are only going to experience life for an age? Uh, but it's not a very good response to the annihilationists, because most annihilationists agree, yeah, it should be rendered eternal and, uh, and be understood as unending in both cases. Now, <clears throat> for sure... They're both they're both eternal. The unsaved the will go away to eternal punishment, and the righteous to eternal life. But why is this not a problem for annihilationists? Well, 
just look at the verse. If you've if you've got your Bible open, just just look at what the just look at the verse. Jesus does not specify exactly what eternal punishment is. The only thing that can be drawn from this verse, at least, uh, is that the damned will be punished for all eternity and that the saved will have life for all eternity. But what punishment is, what what that consists of, what that looks like, that needs to be figured out by looking at what the re the rest of Scripture says regarding final punishment. Let follow my reasoning here. One, the punishment is total annihilation. Two. The annihilated will never, ever be brought back into existence. Three, therefore, total annihilation is eternal punishment. Both eternal torment and annihilation are different forms of eternal punishment. Now, which one is Jesus talking about here in this verse? Is he referring to eternal torture? Or is he referring to um, eternal non-existence? Well, you got to look at the rest of Scripture to to make that judgment. There, I mean, therefore, Matthew twenty five forty six. It doesn't it doesn't help either the traditionalist or the conditionalist because it doesn't say anything about the nature of the punishment. Well, what does the rest of the Bible say? Well, the Bible says that the wicked will perish, as in John three sixteen and Second Peter three nine. They'll meet destruction, as in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, Romans chapter 9, verse 22, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 28, Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 to 21, and that this is the opposite of having eternal life, John chapter 3, verse 16, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, First John chapter 2, verse 7. This destruction is a destruction of both body and soul. See Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah were burned and reduced to nothing but ashes and smoke, so will it be for the ungodly at final punishment. See 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 to 7, and Jude, and Jude verse 7. They will be like corpses being consumed by unquenchable fire and undying worms. Mark chapter 9 verse 48. Confer Isaiah chapter 66 verse 24. The light of the righteous shines brightly, but the lamp of the wicked is extinguished. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 9. For the evildoer has no hope. The lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10. By the way, notice also that Jesus is contrasting eternal punishment with eternal life. But, you know, it's implied that those who go away to eternal punishment don't have eternal life. But if the, again, like I said, um, when talking about John 3.16 in the previous episode, if the traditionalists were right, everyone would have eternal life. It would just be a, a matter of where you spend it and whether you're happy or miserable. But everyone would have eternal life. But 
no, only the saved go to eternal life. Only they have eternal life. That's just uh, an additional observation here. Okay, now we're getting down to <clears throat> the what I what I consider to be the more difficult text. Difficult not in reconciling with annihilation. Although, you know, when I was studying the issue, I did think, God, these are really, these are really, you know, seem to be clear cut and dried. But they're difficult because they come from the apocalyptic book of Revelation, where, as I said in the previous episode, the book of Revelation reads like a cosmic acid trip. You got all sorts of weird imagery in there. First verse we I want to look at uh, that traditionalists appeal to is Revelation 20.10. Revelation 20.10 speaks of the devil and the false prophet being thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. <clears throat> this is one of the key proof texts for eternal torment. Um other than Matthew twenty five forty six, this is like one of the first ones that pop up whenever they say, "Well, how can you deny eternal torment?" Look at Revelation twenty ten. Um, can't blame them. I used to do the exact same thing because, like I said, I used to be a traditionalist. Um, and I don't, you know, and I can't blame them for thinking that this supports eternal torment because, you know, quite frankly, when you read the verse at frank at face value, it certainly seems to. Um. You know, the, the devil and the false prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. However, I think there are a few things we need to consider when we are looking at this verse. And there are a number of reasons why I no longer think Revelation 20.10 supports eternal conscious torment. One is the hermeneutical principles of interpreting unclear passages of scripture in light of the clear hermeneutics if you don't if you don't know what that term means if you're new to the podcast or or you know new to biblical studies in general uh, it's the science of biblical interpretation i like to compare it to the scientific method uh in the scientific method there are certain rules you employ um and it, this helps guide you to proper scientific conclusions. Not infallibly, but obvi you know, obviously we wouldn't have scientific revolutions over the past 400 years, but you know, it, is, it is a good way to interpret nature. Um, and in hermeneutics, there are certain rules you must employ when interpreting what Scripture says. And if you follow these rules, while, again, there's no guarantee you'll always get it right, your margin of error should be very small. I took a course in hermeneutics back in 2016 uh, at Five Point Church in South Carolina. Um, my teacher was a man named Paul Gordon, and one of the principles he taught us was to always interpret unclear or obscure Bible verses in light of the clear and unobscure passages. For example, 1 Timothy 2.15 says, quote, women will be saved through childbearing, end quote. It is possible to take this verse and start some sort of weird childbirthing cult, uh, which teaches that if a woman dies before siring offspring, she goes to hell. 
After all, you could argue, it says women will be saved through childbearing. On the other hand, you have Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-9, to which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. And Romans 4, where Paul argues that salvation is a gift we received without working for it, and that if we did work for our salvation, God would actually owe us salvation, as an employer owes his employees their wages. Moreover, Jesus declares that belief in him is the criteria for salvation in John 3.16, and he says nothing about any kind of human works at all, much less childbearing. Following the principle of interpreting unclear verses in light of the clear, we can say that whatever Paul means by women being saved through childbearing, he probably isn't saying that only moms get into heaven. Following this principle, I'm hesitant to affirm eternal conscious torment on the basis of Revelation 20.10 and the next verse I'm going to look at, Revelation 14.11. I mean, the entire book of Revelation is far from clear, as, as anyone will tell you. It is, the, the whole book is far from clear or straightforward. This isn't a fault of the author, it's just the nature of the apocalyptic genre. Revelation is written in code, as all apocalyptic books are. That's just the nature of the genre. The book of Revelation contains multi-headed monsters, a dragon, false, uh, stars falling from the sky, a talking bird, locusts with human faces on them, etc. You know, so, given that, I'm reluctant to take anything in the book as a straightforward, literal description. What does the Bible say will happen to the wicked? The Bible says that they will perish. John 3.16, 2 Peter 3.9, meet destruction. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Romans chapter 9, verse 22. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 28. That this is the opposite of having eternal life. John 3.16, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. 1 John 2.7 It's a destruction of both body and soul. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 Just as Sodom and Gomorrah were burned and reduced to nothing but ashes and smoke, so will it be for all the ungodly at the final punishment. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 3-7 to and Jude 7 They're going to be corpses being eaten by worms and consumed by fire, as we saw in Isaiah 66.24. Proverbs 13.9 says that the light of the righteous shines brightly, but the lamp of the wicked is extinguished. I mean, we just have so many clear verses from the Gospels, um, um, which most scholars characterize as being in the genre of Greco-Roman biography. And we have so many clear verses from the New Testament epistles, and even some places in the Psalms and Proverbs, which speak in various different ways of the death, destruction, perishing, and the extinguishing of the wicked. <clears throat> My point is this. If I have Matthew 10.28 and Revelation 14.11, and I have to affirm one non-literally, lest I affirm a contradiction... And seeing as the latter is in the apocalyptic genre, written in code by its very nature, and the former is a didactic speech from a biography of Jesus, I will opt to interpret the former literally and the latter figuratively 
any day. Which one is more likely to be literal, Jesus' warning in the Gospel of Matthew or this verse from an apocalyptic book? Secondly, the context of Revelation 20.10 has some odd features we'd be hard-pressed to take literally. It is interesting that in Revelation 20.10, it says that the devil and the false prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, and in verse 14, just um, just a, a few verses later, we read, quote, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, end quote. By anyone's account, death is not a concrete object. Death is an event that happens to people. It's an abstract entity. How can literal death be thrown into a literal lake of fire? And what of Hades? This was, in Greek religion, the, the realm of the dead. It was the equivalent of the Hebrew Sheol. Yet, this is thrown into the lake of fire as well. We have here an abstract entity and an afterlife realm being thrown into the lake of fire. What are we to make of this? This verse is nonsensical if we interpret it literally, for then we'd not only have an abstract entity being cast into the lake of fire, but if Hades is hell, as, of, as people often conflate them, they think, they're synon Hades, they think Hades and hell are synonyms, then the lake of fire, then hell is being thrown into itself. Moreover, the author says that in being cast into the lake of fire, one experiences the second death. I think that being thrown into the lake of fire is symbolic of being utterly destroyed. There are four lines of argument for arguments for why I think that this is the case. One, death experiences death. Death dies. Death experiences death. Sound familiar? But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 20 to 26. Compare 1 Corinthians 15.26 with Revelation 20.14, which says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Sec two, the, the devil will be destroyed, according to 1 Corinthians 15 and Ephesians 6.12. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus' death and resurrection brings life to all who are in him. He then goes on to say that God will destroy all dominion, authority, and power. This language he employed in, in Ephesians 6.12 uh, 
Uh, he used it in Ephesians 6.12 to describe demonic powers Christians wage war against during their earthly lives, hence the need for the armor of God. So Paul is essentially saying that the devil will be destroyed, as well as all the demonic powers who followed him. He then says the last enemy to be destroyed is death in, in the 1 Corinthians passage. 3. Daniel and Revelation describe the same beast, and in the former, the beast is destroyed. Christians differ in their view of the end times, and therefore disagree on what exactly the beast represents. But regardless of their disagreements, they all agree on one thing. The beast of Revelation is a kingdom, or a system, rather than an individual person. Partial preterists, like myself and Kenneth Gentry, see the image of the beast as representing Rome, with Nero Caesar in particular as his representative. Dispensationalists such as John Waldvord see it as the revived Roman Empire in the last days. Other dispensationalists think that it's the United, um, not the United Kingdom, uh, the United Nations. Um, you know, that's the institution that, and uh, the Antichrist is going to I don't know, like become the president of the United States, like in the Left Behind novels, and he's he's going to have some uh, influence on the people of the United Nations or something like that. But you know, we all agree that it's an institution. It's not it's not a per, it's not one single person. Although a person is one of the heads. That's the Antichrist. However, you don't, I, I don't need to make a case for any particular eschatological view to make this argument. Glenn Peoples, in his paper on annihilationism titled Why I Am an Annihilationist, wrote this, quote, The scriptural background of this passage creates problems for the traditional interpretation in at least one other way as well. Like the book of Revelation, Daniel 7 records the fate of the beast. In Daniel's dream and in the interpretation of that dream, in Daniel's vision, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. When this part of the dream is interpreted, we learn that in historical terms it refers to a godless kingdom that will oppose the saints of God. But a time will come when the court will sit and, in, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Verse 26. In Revelation 20, the fate of the beast is described as being tormented day and night forever and ever in a lake of fire. If the traditionalist were to apply the same method of interpretation to both Revelation and Daniel, we would end up with a glaring contradiction, because if one is slain, then one cannot also be kept alive and tormented day and night forever and ever quite apart from the fact that the beast is not a someone who can suffer such a fate. If, however, we accept that... I, I lost my place, sorry. Uh, if, however, we accept that the same point is being made in both apocalyptic passages, using a variation in similar imagery, then the point in each case is that the kingdoms that oppose the kingdom of God will be overthrown forever. They will come to an end. End quote. If you, ex if you accept that the fourth beast Daniel talks about is Rome, 
and that the beast in Revelation is that same beast as many preterists and even many dispensationalists do, then you really have a problem here in taking the beast as undergoing eternal torment. Daniel 7 clearly says that the beast will be completely destroyed forever. Daniel 7.26 Fourth reason I don't think this supports eternal torment. Revelation 20.15 calls being thrown into the lake of fire the second death. Ask yourself this. Why are they said to undergo the second death? And what exactly was the first death? Well, we know what the first death was. It was the destruction of their physical bodies. Since the first death is destruction of their physical bodies, why interpret the second death as anything less than destruction, this time of body and soul? I think Revelation 20.15 and Matthew 10.28 are referring to the same thing. The first death was the destruction of body only. And everyone experiences this, Christians and non-Christians alike. The second death is of destruction of body and soul, and only those who have rejected Christ will undergo that. That's what John says. He says that the, sec the saints, those who, who worshipped God and didn't accept the mark of the beast, he says the second death will not touch them. So with all of that... With all of what I've just said in mind, let's look at that passage again. Quote, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and verses 14 to 15. This sounds more like a fire that consumes than a fire that torments. So, in conclusion, could it be that Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 to 14, is describing not conscious torment of entities, of which death is incapable of undergoing, but the other destruction of these entities? Death will be destroyed according to 1 Corinthians 15.26, and the demons will be destroyed, according to 1 Corinthians 15.24. In Revelation 20, what is thrown into the lake of fire? These exact same entities, death and the devil. Paul does not mention the beast, the false prophet, and the peoples whose names weren't written in the book of life, but since all of these entities are thrown into the same lake of fire, we can infer that whatever happens to death Hades, the devil, and the false prophet, we can infer, will happen to these other individuals, these other entities as well. Again, I ask you, which is more likely to be literal, the epistle or the apocalyptic book? Well, epistles aren't generally written in coded language, while apocalyptic books are. It's very likely that when Paul said the principalities and death would be destroyed, he meant it in the way we usually use the word destroy. Revelation 20, I conclude, symbolically represents the destruction of death, the destruction of the devil, the destruction of the false prophet, Hades, and everyone whose name wasn't written in the book of life.
They were killed. They were annihilated. This is why Revelation calls it the second death. So, now, at this point, one may object that I have overlooked the torment language in the passage. You know, the, they'll be... Um, now, I do, I do think, I do think that the wicked will experience torment prior to being destroyed. But how long anyone will be forced to suffer will depend on how serious their sins were. Um... But it says they'll be tormented forever and ever, you might say. Well, remember, we should interpret the unclear verses in light of the clear. In light of the avalanche of biblical evidence for annihilationism, whatever tormented day and night forever and ever means, it probably doesn't contradict the rest of Scripture. It's Now, I think it's quite possible that the author of Revolu uh, Revolu Revelation is employing hyperbole here. We all know instances in which in which we use eternity phrases like forever when we really mean just a vast amount of time. Oh, come on, this is taking forever. Um, but we don't mean it's literally taking an infinite amount of time, whatever that is. The waitress is just taking forever to, to get here with my food. We don't mean, she, oh, she's taking an infinite amount of time to get here. Um, we just mean it's taking a long time. Um, I think John is using forever in the same hyperbolic fashion. It would certainly make sense, uh, in the, especially in the case of Satan. I mean, he's, he's been sinning for a long, long, long time. Um, thousands and thousands of years. I, I would imagine that he's got quite a bit of, re of retributive punishment queued up. Uh, if suffering precedes death as part of the punishment, if this is, as Chris Date calls it, a violent execution, um, then perhaps Satan will suffer longer prior to his annihilation than even the likes of Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. I think of what Jesus said in Luke 17.1. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. Okay, let's finally look at Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 to 11 says, quote, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they, too, will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in its image, or for anyone who receives the, the mark of its name. End quote. To someone who knew their Old Testament really well, the image of rising smoke, and even the claim of smoke rising forever, would sound very familiar. Why? Because this is, in fact, an Old Testament idiom. You can find this in Isaiah chapter 34, verses 9 to 10, a prophecy against the kingdom of Edom. Quote, Its streams will be turned into pitch, and its loose earth into brimstone, and its land will become burning pin, uh, pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. 
From generation to generation it will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. End quote. Clear similarities can be observed between the destruction of Edom and what happens to those who worship the beast in Revelation. Both passages include a declaration that this series of horrible judgments won't cease night or day. Of most significance, however, is Isaiah's declaration that after Edom is burned and destroyed, its smoke will go up forever. Traditionalists frequently argue that in Revel that in Revelation 14:11 that if the smoke rises forever, the fire must be blazing about into eternity. And if the fire is blazing for eternity, there must um there must be something burning in it for eternity. The people burning in it for because you know, God would not keep a fire going forever and ever if if what it burned had already been destroyed. But it's obvious that we don't have a fire that is literally burning forever and ever in Isaiah's prophecy. What Isaiah was essentially saying is, y'all are going to be destroyed. History shows us that Edom was indeed destroyed. There's also no evidence of a fiery pit in the Middle East containing people screaming in agony, unable to die. I'm sure if that, if that were the case, that would be quite the tourist attraction. The most reasonable explanation is that Isaiah is being hyperbolic and figurative here. The smoke would not literally rise for all eternity. It wouldn't even rise for such an incredibly long time that he would <coughs> that someone would even hyperbolically call it forever. Nevertheless, the the smoke rising was figurative of the destruction of what had been burned. So Isaiah was being really emphatic by saying the smoke would not only rise, but would rise forever. So why couldn't the Apostle John have employed the same language in the same way when he penned Revelation 14? Okay, we're going on a little bit long now with this episode, but I really want to get this last one out of the way because uh, it's so frequently brought up, and that is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Quote, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dog came... Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away when Lazarus, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to, the, to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they also will not come to this place of torment. 
Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. End quote. This parable has a conscious human being existing in what appears to be hell, and he's experiencing agony. He's able to carry on a conversation with Lazarus and Abraham. So this proves that the people in hell are conscious. They're in agony. They're being tormented. This is, this is the traditional view of hell, right? Wrong. The text does have a conscious person in torment. But for one thing, the text nowhere indicates how long his torment will last. Maybe he'll die after a while. It it, it doesn't it never doesn't say. Um, it's nowhere implied how long the rich man will suffer. But more more than that, there are clues in the text that indicate that this text is about the intermediate state between death and resurrection. In other words, before the final judgment. First, notice that Abraham is with Lazarus in the story. At the time Jesus told the story, Abraham hadn't been raised from the dead. Jesus' own resurrection hadn't even occurred yet, much less the resurrection of all the dead. Moreover, the rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers so that they wouldn't end up where he is. And to that, Abraham replies, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What that indicates is that the three in the story are dead themselves, existing as disembodied souls. Now, like I said, I do believe that there will be a period of torment for the unbelievers. I say this on the basis of, one, scripture, and two, moral intuition. We all intuitively realize that people who do evil deserve to suffer for the evil that they've done. In fact, I mean, that's an, an argument for many traditionalists has been, as if, if the wicked are annihilated immediately after death, then justice is not served. Hitler, for example, died a painless death by hanging. Uh, if there is no hell, there is no justice, they'll say. The real question, then, is how long they deserve to suffer before being executed. Uh, moreover, from Scripture, while the Bible is saturated in language of destruction, execution, perishing, of the soul and body being destroyed, etc., um, there are also uh, passages that imply a period of, conscious, uh, of consciousness prior to uh, cessation of existence, such as the parable of the uh, of the of the rich man and Lazarus, and the, the various mentions of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, I mean, when all of Scripture's teaching on final punishment are taken together, I can neither affirm eternal conscious torment, nor can I affirm the Jehovah's Witness view that the wicked are annihilated immediately upon biological death. 2 Peter 2.4 mentions... For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, dot, dot, dot. Uh, now, we can imagine that these angels are filled with dread, mental torment, as they await their final punishment in the realm known as Tartarus. I've got a paper coming up on the Nephilim and the Divine Council uh, in March uh, where I talk about this passage 
outside the context of 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 the hell debate and it's very interesting why these angels are bound um but i think perhaps the same is true of humans the parable of the rich man and lazarus strongly suggests that that is true of humans that you know they're they're being held in chains of darkness in tartarus or hades awaiting their judgment uh it's sort of like i I think it's analogous to people being held in a jail cell for a time prior to being brought before the judge, being sentenced to death, and then being executed. Um, and there, uh, one traditionalist I was dialoguing with on Facebook said, "But we don't torture people in jail." True, but aren't death row inmates tormented inwardly, knowing that their days are numbered? You see, he was assuming that the torment comes from an external source, but even even many modern traditionalists have argued against that idea. Interestingly, uh, the context of Second Peter two four speaks of judgment as being that of destruction. You know, so he condemns Sodom and Gomorrah, reducing them to ashes as an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. Um. So, I mean, when I put all the pieces together of the biblical puzzle, I believe that the timeline of the damned will be this. One, biological death. Two, held in the intermediate state, Hades, Sheol, Tartarus, whatever you want to call it, which is a sort of cosmic jail cell. There they will be conscious and they'll know, oh, we're, we're, headed, we're, we're headed for a violent execution on the final day of judgment. Three, then comes the bodily resurrection of all the of all the dead, righteous and unrighteous, saved and unsaved. And four, then the unsaved will be thrown into the fires of hell where they are utterly destroyed. Like the angels mentioned in Second Peter two four, they are kept in chains awaiting their judgment. When they are ultimately judged, they will given the they will be given the Sodom treatment, which is a lot dirtier than I in, intended for that to sound. They will be reduced to ashes and dust, as in Matthew chapter 2, verses uh, 3 to 6. They will be destroyed in both body and soul, Matthew 10, 28. Uh, this will be a very, very terrible fate. Conditionalism is often accused of softening the doctrine of hell. But... And then, you know, I mean, I'm not going to deny that this view is nowhere near as harsh as the idea of unending conscious torture. But can we really say that an agonizing death is not something to, to dread? Jesus certainly didn't think so. He was in mental agony, anticipating his slow, torturous death on the cross in our place. He was in so much agony that he sweated drops of blood. So, I I, I just don't see how the, the conditionalist view of hell is, is something that you can just sneeze at. So that's, that's going to be... This episode went on a little longer than I intended, um, but... Hopefully, I've made a persuasive case for conditional immortality, also known as annihilationism.
Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. And by the way, you can pick up my book, Yahweh's Inferno, Why Scripture's Teaching Doesn't Impugn the Doctrine of Hell, in March. I can't give an exact date, but you know, just follow Cerebral Faith on Facebook um, or just keep listening to the podcast. I'll tell you when it's out. I'm not going to keep it a secret or anything like that. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And I want to give a shout-out to uh, Noah Edmonds, who donated $20. He, he's not a patron, but he tr he did donate $20 to um, to Cerebral Faith Ministries to help me keep the website going. Because um, I, I was running up a little short this month. And thank you to my regular patrons also, uh, Kevin Walker, David Parrish, Jordan Apodaca, Kevin Whitaker, and Austin Long. And thank you guys for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. I will see you next week. Peace out, and God bless you.